I have uh, been watching more swimming than I ever have in the history of my life. I don't know if, if you resonate with that, if you love the Olympics like I love the Olympics. I've been watching everything. Uh, I've even been really into handball, did not know that that existed. It's like dodgeball and soccer, but like real aggressive. Looks awesome, I don't know why we don't play it. But what happened is, as I'm watching all these sports, I began to question every decision that I made as a child. <laughs> because I'm like, maybe I could have been an Olympic volleyball player. And I'm thinking like, yeah, you know, I think I got, I got it if I would just train really hard. And I thought, well, maybe, what if, what if I could be an Olympic swimmer? And I was like, no, there's no way. Because that, that thing that Michael Phelps does with the slapping in the arms, I'm like, I have bones, so I can't do that. I thought, well, what about like an Olympic gymnast? And I was like, I'm about 10 feet away from my toes, so that would never work. Um, synchronized diving, I was like, well, you know, I don't like showers that much. I don't know if you, you know, if you catch that joke, you notice because when they dive, they dive in the water, they get out, they get in the shower. They dive in the water, they get out, they get in the shower. It's like, wow, how many times are they going to take a shower? They really are about showers. And, uh, but I've been, I've, I love watching the Olympics. It's once every four years, it's two weeks, and you watch all these sports that you only watch once every four years. But it's a beautiful concept, right? The world comes together, people from everywhere that are competing in these designated sports come together to challenge each other in, in, in the events. But it, it, it's with a certain kind of mentality, right? There's, the Olympics kind of breeds this mentality of respect and sportsmanship, uh, of upholding and kind of celebrating the human spirit and, and the human ability and what we're capable of doing. You're watching these, these, these men and women run, and I'm like, I would literally die right there, like 10, 10 meters in on the ground. There's no chance. I mean, there was one last night, I think it was last night or two nights ago, they ran like six miles in like what it takes me to run one mile. And it's unbelievable. But if, we're, if you begin to watch it, you realize that it's about team, right? It's the United States versus all these other countries and, and they're all facing each other. And everyone, all of us are from very many different places all over the world. So you're rooting for your team. But it's really more about the individual, right? I mean... If you're like me, you're rooting for the individual more than you're checking the medal count. You're wanting to see the people that you want to win, win. And then the media begins to play that up. So you're watching like Michael Phelps versus the South African swimmer. And they're like really heightening that rivalry. Like he's shadow boxing and Michael Smith or Michael Phelps uh, looks like someone stole his Oreos. You know, he's sitting there like really mad. And then, like, you know, they win and they, like, shake their finger at each other and say, I've won, you know, Michael Phelps is like, I've won more gold medals than 51 countries, you know. He has actually more medals than 91 countries, ever, in all time. Like, that's insane. So it, it, it's unbelievable you're watching this and then, and then you watch, like, how they're analyzing Gabby Douglas, like, facial expressions. Have you seen that? Like, Twitter exploded because, like, she's so mad. She doesn't even like Simone. She doesn't even like Ali. She hates the USA. She hates everything in the world. You know, just because she's, like, not as excited. So they're, like, playing up all these rivalries and all of this tension because what happens is we realize we're watching this. They have poured their life into these events every day, all day long, training, training. They've neglected all these other things, and there's a sense of pride, right, that wells up. And we're okay with that. I mean, I, I, I've noticed, like I said, that I'm cheering for the individual more than I am for the country. And we're okay with pride. We tolerate it. We accept it. But it's not moving. It's, it, it's not powerful in the same way as humility. If you saw, I think it was two nights ago, when Simone Manuel won the gold 
the first African-American swimmer to ever win gold in swimming. Her reaction was powerful. And it wasn't just because she won gold and she was really excited because she's been training forever and four years and she finally won gold and that's all she's ever wanted. It's not just because of that, right? You could tell when she won that she realized that it was bigger than her. You could almost realize that she's thinking about all the other swimmers before her and all the other swimmers after her that maybe never thought it would be possible or wondered whether or not an African-American would win gold in swimming, and she did it. Here's what she says right after. She says, this medal is not just for me. It's for some of the African-Americans who have been before me and have been inspirations. I hope I can be an inspiration for others. This medal is for the people who come behind me and get into the sport. I mean, her reaction all the way through to the medal ceremony was so captivating and it was so powerful and it was so moving because you saw that it was not just about her. She was even thinking about other people as she's interviewed and as she's processing this. And Peter tonight in 1 Peter 5, which is the very end, we've been going through this letter now throughout the summer, and this is the last uh, sermon at the end of the letter of 1 Peter, and he's bringing up humility again. He talked about it a couple weeks ago. He's bringing it up again because it's so essential that we understand who we're called to be. We're called to be people of humility in a culture that elevates pride. And it's not just because that's what we're told to do or because, well, I guess the Bible says I've got to be humble, so I've got to work at being humble. But what Peter's going to kind of dissect, because last week we talked about suffering, he's going to say, actually, you know, in the midst of suffering, in the wake of suffering, as you process trials and you go throughout all of these things in your life that are going to bring in anxiety and fear, it's actually humility that brings grace and brings you through those things. So let's jump in. Here's what he says in the very first verse. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. In the previous chapter, Peter is talking about suffering, and he says a a whole lot of things about suffering, but just to, to summarize it, he says suffering is expected, everybody experiences it, and that it's purifying. There's actually purpose behind it. And he says that as a Christian, we are to enter into, if you're here and you're of faith, you're to enter into suffering with rejoicing because you recognize that you're united to Christ. In the midst of suffering, when it feels like God is distant and maybe he's mad at you, you realize that it's actually not the case. God loves you and he's near to you and he cares for you. That suffering is much more deeper and much more bigger than you can see. And God is there in the midst of it. And so the question that he kind of poses is, how are you going to respond to suffering? Are you going to respond like everybody else, which is anger, resentment, stiff-arming God? Or are you going to respond the way that Peter speaks about, a place of humility where you come and you rejoice? You have peace, you have hope, you know that God is near to you, and you continue to seek after the things that God has called you to seek after. He picks up right after that, and he's he's going to transition into church leadership. And he's going to begin to break down in this passage humility because it's the remedy for us as we go through suffering. He talks about elders. And if you're unfamiliar what an elder is in our denomination, an elder is an office of the church. It's a position of leadership that you are nominated for, that you go through training and testing. And then the church um, kind of accepts and brings you in as an elder. And an elder is someone who governs and who oversees the direction of the church. So the church in our denomination is not run by me. 
It is run by a board of elders, a, a committee, it's called a session of elders that come together, they pray for, they think, they process, and they guide the church. In, in our church at Crossbridge Brickle, we don't have any elders here besides me, so we're under the, the leadership of Crossbridge Pinecrest, who has elders. But we do have deacons, we have wonderful deacons. That's another office of leadership in the church, and deacons are called to serve and to be empathetic. They look for the needs of the church, they meet the needs of the church, they model what it looks like to live humbly and to use their gifts to serve other people, and they encourage others to raise up and to serve. And so Peter looks at the leadership structure, he looks at elders, and he says, it really matters how you live. It really matters the example that you set. Is it one of humility? And he's going to say here, and it's going to come out, that church leadership is not like an insignificant thing. I think it's easy to feel that sometimes. You know, you have leadership in your job or another organization, and you feel very esteemed by that. Church leadership is very weighty because it's dealing with eternal things. You're dealing with people in their most vulnerable state where they're bearing their soul to you and you're helping to guide and to pray and to process through that thing, those things with people. And, and he says that right in verse two and following. He says this to the elders, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, don't be in it for yourself, but eagerly, not domineering over those who are in your charge, but being examples of the flock, being humble, right? And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. He's saying that positions of leadership in the church carry a lot of weight. They really matter because you're overseeing the direction of God's family. You're caring for people when they're open and they're honest and they're sharing their struggles and their anxieties and their fears. And you need to lead elders, those in leadership, not with domineering attitude, not for your own gain so that people say, whoa, they're a leader, that's amazing. But humbly looking for the interest of others, caring for the interests of others. Look what he says in the first verse. He says, as a fellow elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ. He's revealing a lot there of, of what it takes uh, to be a leader. He's, ex he's explaining biblical leadership. And he says, you have to remember and be mindful of Christ and who he is. You have to remind yourself of the gospel, the sufferings of Christ, who God is and what he's done for you. He came in the flesh, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man. He lived the life that we couldn't. He was a perfect example of leadership. He sacrificed himself for others. He thought of others before he thought of himself to the point to where he was willing to give his life up for us. And then he proved his victory three days later when he rose. You, you to remind yourself that Biblical leadership involves suffering and sacrifice because it's oriented to thinking about other people, but he's also drawing you to the darkest moment in his life. Do you remember what happened during the sufferings of Christ for Peter? Peter says, I was a witness to the sufferings of Christ. And it's, he's not saying like, yeah, I was there, you know, you should really listen to me. I was really stand up. I was a model. I was a great example. Then that was the worst point in his entire life. When Christ began to suffer, what did Peter do? He ran away. He denied that he knew him. He sought to protect his own image, to care for his own comfort. He denied him three times. He said, I'll never do that. I'll never do that. Denied him three times. When Christ, his savior, was in the midst of his suffering, so what is Peter sharing with us? He's saying that biblical leadership, to be a leader, actually involves 
humility to the point of being able and being capable and being willing to share your weakness and your failures. He says, I'm a fellow elder like, like you. I'm a leader, and I was a witness to the sufferings of Christ. I'm not only mindful of who Christ is and the example that he sets, but you know my story. You know that I, I'm not perfect, that I failed in that moment, that biblical leadership takes the, the ability and the willingness to be vulnerable and to say, I have weakness. I have failed many times. It takes that humility, which is also meaning that you actually understand the gospel, right? Which is that we're failed people and Christ came to redeem failed people. So leadership takes humility, it takes sacrifice, and he begins to emphasize this in verse five. He says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility to one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to to the humble. He's saying, just like the elders are called to be humble and to serve in that fashion, to think of others before they think of themselves, not for shameful gain, not domineering, being willing to bear their, their soul and their weaknesses and their, their failures, so you too, those who are younger, are to submit and be humble. And he literally is meaning those who are young. Um, I don't know if you can kind of connect with this, but when I was young, I thought nobody knew anything, right? When you're young, you're like, my parents, don't, they're like, how do they even raise me? They don't know anything, right? And then as you get older, you realize that other people actually know things, and they know a lot more things than you. There's like, people can understand things that you can't, that's possible. And so he's saying that when you're young, maybe actually physically young, or maybe you're immature, you think that you know everything, you know, you make the little A anarchy sign with a circle on your notebook in school. You don't even know what that means, but it seems cool, so you draw it. He's saying that when you're young, you think that you know everything, that you think that you're in charge, you're in control, you have it all. But as you get older, you realize that, no, actually, I don't. I, I'm, I'm able to submit. I'm able to listen. And he says those who are young need to do that. But not just those who are young. He says, clothe yourselves, which actually should start a new paragraph. So you can maybe push it down there in your Bible if that's possible. All of you, clothe yourselves, all of you with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We talked about humility a couple weeks ago, and C.S. Lewis has a quote uh, that we shared then, and we'll share it now, because it's, it's one of the greatest quotes on humility. He says, true humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. So he's looking at everybody. He's saying young, old, rich, poor, leader, not leader, men, women. You're to clothe yourself with humility. If you're gonna, if you're gonna lead, you need to be humble, humble. If you're young, you need to be humble. All of you, all of us are to seek to be humble. Paul explains it like this in Philippians 2. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition, nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others, that we are all called to be humble, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And we're okay with this, right? We, we tolerate, we accept, and we actually elevate humility in our culture. We say it's a good thing. We understand that it's a virtue. When we see it, it's moving and powerful like you see in the Olympics or maybe somebody in your office or a friend or a, a spouse. When you see humility, it's powerful, it's moving, we like it. But it's so much easier to be proud. 
It's so much easier to be consumed with pride and to be about yourself, is it not? It is. And so what happens is, because we're okay with pride as well, and we actually promote it, we begin to give ourselves permission to live according to our desires. So we justify our actions, even if they disadvantage and hurt other people, because there are actions to get the life that we want. We have this life that we want, that we're running after, that we want to see happen, because if we're going to have a good life, it has to look like this. And so if we affect or if we hurt or if we disadvantage other people in the process, it's okay because I'm running after the life that I want. You may not say that and admit that, but that's the truth, right? And it comes out because whenever somebody comes to challenge you, to criticize you, what is our natural response? It's their fault, right? Think about it. If someone disagrees with what you value, we typically think, man, they're so ignorant. They're intolerant, they're narrow-minded because they disagree with what I value. If we pursue success so feverishly that it affects our family, we think, you know what? They don't understand, they're being ungrateful. I'm trying to provide for them this life and they're being ungrateful. If your friend comes to you and says that feel, they feel like you're unreliable and you're not thoughtful, you think, man, they're so sensitive, right? They're so sensitive. You're married and you get in an argument with your spouse and yeah, maybe you'll admit, I, should, I said some things I shouldn't have, but they started it and their arguments are so illogical, right? Someone comes to you and criticizes your kids and you're like, have you seen your kids? I mean, who are you to talk to me? You come, someone in the church, they continue to encourage you to be, self, to be uh, generous and to serve, and you think to yourself, listen, you guys in the church, you need to understand the real world, okay? We got jobs, we got all these other things to do, back off, I do enough, right? People come to us, and they challenge us, they, they criticize us, or they rebuke us, or they, they, any way that pushes against the life that we want to live, and that we've decided to live, and what do we do? Who are you to say that? Or we look at them, and we, we name all their faults, See, when you're focused more on somebody else's faults than your own, especially when somebody comes to you and challenges you, that's pride. We we live in in an unbelievably narcissistic culture. We are the selfie generation, right? I mean, we have selfie sticks that go like 45 feet high. Jessica and I were on a vacation um, a couple years ago, and uh, this is not a lie. We saw a guy with a selfie stick, and we counted. In one minute, he took over 45 pictures. And it was like... Like, how many angles do you need, bud? I mean, it's like him on the ground, but he, was, he just wanted that perfect picture. You know, you're out, and you're thinking about Instagram, and you're like, you know what? I need, there's only four people here, but I need to make it look like it's really cool. So I'm going to take this, like, picture where it looks like I'm at this crowded party so that everybody on the other side of the screen is like, man, they're having so much fun. They're so cool. And you're, like, really actually bored. See, this is, like, this is who we are, Right? And social, I'm not knocking social media, it has a lot of positive aspects to it, but it can be a venue for boasting, right? It can fuel our narcissism because if, if you're here and you're a millennial, which is a lot of us, we've been raised and we've been told, you can do whatever you want. You're the greatest thing ever. Yeah, you got 10th place, but you get a first place medal, Right? <laughs> this is who we are. And so what happens is we're the first generation to ever rate ourselves as above average. 
Like, no one thinks that they're average. Like, yeah, maybe I'm, no, I'm above average, yeah. We may not say we're excellent because, like, pride, oh, I'm not prideful. I'm above average, you know, that's humble for us. See, what happens for us is we've been, we've been kind of indoctrinated in this culture, in this world, to where life is about me. It's only about me, my dreams, my pursuit, my job, my career goals, my family, my kids, my bank account, my, my, right? We go down the list. It's about me. And it's really difficult for us to really work at and find humility to come up in our life because we are totally okay with creating our own little happiness equation and then living for that. So we give ourselves permission to create this little personal happiness equation, and then we think that's going to make us happy. Because if I were to say right now, raise your hand if you want to be happy, every single one of you would raise your hand. If you don't raise your hand, that's weird. Everybody wants to be happy, right? And so you may not be happy, but you want to be. So we create these equations, right? So we think job plus money plus acknowledgement equals happiness. Marriage plus good kids equals happiness. Friends plus experiences equals happiness. Job plus money to travel equals happiness. Job plus anywhere but Miami equals happiness. Right? Some of you are in that. And here's the problem. We may find moments of happiness. An experience, a vacation, a relationship, a job, a promotion. Move to a new city and we may find some moments of happiness but we'll never find joy. We'll find happiness in moments, and it will reinforce our faulty equation, and we'll keep running after it, but we'll never find joy. And the reason is, is because all the things that we've put in our equation, they're always going to fail. Our job will not always be wonderful. You could get laid off, or it could just be a struggle. Your bank account will eventually decrease. Success is like a carrot on a stick. Once you get a little bit of it, you just want more of it. Your spouse will hurt you. Your kids will disappoint you experiences will not be as great as they used to be. You did this one thing on Friday nights for a year, and then by year two, it's so boring. Your friends will leave. They'll move away. They'll backstab you. They'll, you'll get out of touch. Other cities have problems just like Miami, I promise. See, there's only one thing that doesn't fail, and that's God and the joy that he supplies. It's the only thing that will not fail you He's the one that brings joy because it says here that God opposes the proud. Those who have their personal happiness equation and this is what I need to do to be happy and this is my life and this is how I'm going to live it. I don't care how I affect other people. He opposes the proud but he gives grace to the humble. He gives joy to the humble and Peter practically explains then, then how, how do we live as people who are seeking to be humble? He says in verse six, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you. See, humility involves more than just thinking of others before yourself. Humility also involves your posture before God. It's actually the core of humility is your posture before God. He says that those that are humble, those that are seeking to humble themselves, that have received joy in God's grace, they sit under the mighty hand of God. Which means you have to ask questions like, do I really believe that God is in control and not me? Am I okay with the life that God has presented me knowing that it's the life that he wants me to live and to steward? 
Do I wake up daily asking God to guide my day, or am I seeking to guide my own day? See, that's a tough one for me, I'll be honest. It's really easy for me to wake up and get into my routine, right? We have these routines and these rhythms that we go through, and you can work through your day, and you can realize, man, I'm just totally manufacturing my own day here. There's a lot of wisdom in waking up and beginning with reminding yourself of the gospel and then ending your day with the gospel. So I've challenged myself, I talked to this about in my community group, and I've begun to wake up, and on my way to work, I walk to work, I work at a co-working space here, Pipeline Brickle, it's a great place, and on my way to work, I listen to worship music, and I pray, I pray for other people, pray for my family, and sometimes I just listen and I'm still, but it's great because it orients me, right? It puts me in a place to where I'm asking that I would actually sit under God's hand today, that would actually remember that he is in control. The life he's given me is not about me. It's a life that he's given me so I can use it and steward it for his glory and his name. That I actually need his help. (laughs) In the Old Testament, God continued to try to root this in the people of God and the Israelites, right? They're standing before the Red Sea and there's a whole sea in front of them and an army is coming behind them is gonna wipe them all out and they're just waiting. They have to wait for God to do something. And God does, and they go through. They're in the wilderness, and and God makes them wait for 40 years to remind them of what? That he's in control. The life that they have been given is the one that he has given them. He brings uh, bread from heaven so that they every single day wake up. If they're going to eat, it's because God brings it to them. They move when the cloud and the pillar of fire move because they wait for God. And what do they time and time and time and time again do? They set up memorials and reminders of who God is and what he's done to remind themselves that they are not in control, that God is actually the one that is in control. See, life is not about what you can make with your hands, but what God can make with his hands through you. It's a big difference there. One is humility and one is pride. It's not about what you can make with your hands. You know, I, I've, I've earned this. I deserve this. This is my life, my talents, my ability, my brain, my job, my... It's not about what you can make with your hands. It's about what God can make through you with his hands. It's a big difference. And when you have that beginning to root in you, that the rest becomes inevitable. Where Verse 7, it says, you begin to cast all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So you realize in suffering that you're suffering or struggling or going through trials in your life, not because God's mad at you or because he doesn't love you, but... It's quite the opposite. God is very near to you, as we talked about last week, when you're suffering. He is right there. He is empathetic. He cares for you. And this is really encouraging because Peter is acknowledging something here. He's saying that anxiety is expected. That when you're struggling, when you're suffering, it's not easy. We don't paint on a smile and pretend like suffering is okay and fine and no big deal. We're called to rejoice in the midst of it, but We're going to have fears. We're going to have anxieties. And it's also encouraging because it means that faith, a lack of faith doesn't, isn't the reason that you have anxiety. See, faith doesn't remove anxiety, but what faith does is it gives you a place to put it, which is on Christ. That's why Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In the midst of suffering, in the midst of trials, in the midst of Whatever you're going through, because you're fearful, because you're anxious, because it's hard, it doesn't mean that you don't have faith. It means you need to remember humbly where you put your anxiety, where you put your fear. You put it on Christ because he cares for you. 
And not only does humility give you the ability to cast your anxieties to him, but also to verse eight, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by the brotherhood throughout the world. He says, be watchful, resist the lies of the devil, stand firm in your faith as you work through and process suffering. And this takes humility because it takes you acknowledging that your life is not about your desires. Your life is not about squeezing out every little ounce and drop that you can. It's not about fulfilling all the things that you think will make you happy. It's not about your personal happiness equation actually It's about living for the life that God has defined. And that those thoughts where we begin to think that, when we begin to think that life is all about us, or we create these personal happiness equations, or we begin to to resist any kind of criticism or rebuke because we got it, we know. You know, I, I know what I'm doing here. Those are exactly the thoughts that the devil uses to devour you. Look what he said in the very beginning. His first words to human beings, Adam and Eve are in the garden. They have everything They're told, don't eat of this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the devil comes to them, and here's what he says. You will not surely die. God said, if you eat of it, you'll die. You you won't die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He comes at him, and he says, listen, God is a liar. He is a brutal master trying to keep you from enjoying life. You're not going to be happy if you just continue to do what he calls you to do. So you need to make your own decisions. You need to figure out the life that you want to live and go after it. Be your own God, Adam and Eve. And here's what happens when we're not watchful, when we begin to allow pride to sweep up in us and we begin to think to ourselves, yeah, maybe that's true. It says that when the woman saw that the tree was good, when she saw the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to her eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and she ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. So we think to ourselves as, begin, as pride begins to swell up in us, if we begin to believe what we've been indoctrinated to believe that my life is all about me. Yeah, you know what? That, that does sound good. I should make that decision. This equation will work. And then we take it and we run after it. And Peter is saying that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Peter says that the grace that is given to the humble are those that that understand that there's a difference between happiness and joy. That they're looking for the interest of others, that they're waking up and they're remembering that God is in control. They are sitting under his hand, asking him to guide their life, realizing that the life that they have is not their own, but it's been given to them by God, and that in the midst of suffering, God is actually very near, and that as we work through life, the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion. Have you ever seen, like, a National Geographic, how lions attack? You never know when they're going to attack, right? You have that little gazelle, and they're really cute, and they're just going about their day, and they're eating, and then boom, the leg's ripped off, right? Because a lion, you can, like, barely see. If you were sleeping, now you're awake. Um, <laughs> the lion, the, the, I mean, it's just torn to shreds, right? Because Devil, lions attack you when you least expect it. Suddenly, leg gone, just like that. So you have to be watchful. You have to be mindful because in the routine of life is when the devil comes to attack you. You're to stand firm and to resist in your faith, which means you're to remind yourself of what Peter is saying. 
This life is not about me. God is not, is not mad at me. He doesn't not love me when I'm suffering. He is in control. I've been given this life to steward and live it for him. And here's the good news. It's really easy to tell when the devil is lying to you because he makes everything about you. He strokes your ego, right? He says, your suffering is pointless. Really, you believe this Bible that's like thousands of years old? He says, God doesn't love you. Success and money will bring you joy, actually. You'll never be happy alone. You'll never be fulfilled in Miami. Don't commit too much because you really need to protect your free time. Be careful about sharing your faith with people in your work or your friends because you don't want to lose a friend. You want to be very careful with that, right? He makes everything about you. Everything is about you. And God's word says that, his, that your life is about him. There's a big difference between the two. He says that, that God's word says that joy is found in him, purpose is found in him, suffering is not meaningless, it's actually purifying, and God is very near to you in the midst of it. That God loves you just as you are. And look how Peter ends this section, wrapping all of this up. He says, And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. The God of all grace, the one who has given you undeserved favor. That's what grace is. Undeserved favor. He didn't do anything to deserve it. He gave it to you. He has called you. Meaning, pride tells us that we had something to do with it. And Peter says, God has called you. He did the action. He has called you, and he has given you eternal glory in Christ. He has promised you not only grace and mercy and comfort and nearness now as you process and go through this life and the struggles and the trials, but he has also promised you eternal glory. As he says in chapter one, an unending, unfading inheritance promise for you. As he says here, a crown of glory. So when you feel like, I just can't resist the devil, I just can't stop living for myself, I just can't stop making this decision, I just can't fill in the blank, Peter says, God himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. See, we have passages like this that give us imperatives. Here are the imperatives that have been given to us this evening. Be humble, serve others, recognize God is in control, give your anxieties to him, be watchful, resist the devil, stand firm in your faith. And our natural inclination when we hear all these things is, okay, Carter, are you gonna give me a pamphlet with like step one, two, three, maybe four steps? I think I could maybe do four. Or you think to yourself as you're listening, you're like, you know, I'm, I'm really gonna work on this. I'm gonna be humble. I'm gonna wake up and I'm gonna pray. It's gonna, um, it's, I'm gonna get better, Carter. I'm really gonna get better at this, okay? See, we think we're gonna combat pride with pride. That's what we think. Yeah, I really need to get better. I'm, I'm gonna, don't worry, I'm gonna fix it. I'm gonna control it. I, I got it. I realize you convicted me. I got it. I understand. See, Peter says we're to be humble. We're to serve. We're to care for others. We're to recognize that God is control and live our life for him. But he says, don't ever think that you can do it on your own, that it's like up to you. That's why he says that God himself will restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. And when you hear that, sometimes you think to yourself, okay, Carter, so what do I do? Do I just like sit and wait? No. You run to God. See, we combat pride with the gospel. That is how we combat pride. 
we remind ourselves of who God is and what he's done and what he's promised. We start our day off with God and we end our day with God. We come to him in prayer. We listen to songs of worship. We read his word. When we feel like we can't, we turn to God in prayer. When we feel like we're lost, we run to God's word. When we're suffering, we ask the Holy Spirit to bring clarity and to bring peace and to bring comfort. When we're feeling alone, we turn to God who is called our father and our friend and we also can come to his family. When we're struggling with sin, we come to God and we ask him for mercy and we ask him for strength and we also have the family of God to find brothers and sisters that can hold us accountable and encourage us and be there by our side. See, our our reaction is never, okay, I'm gonna fix myself. I'm gonna make myself better. I got the imperatives, I'm gonna put them on a postcard, I'm gonna really work at it because it doesn't work. It's combating pride with pride. Our response is always to be, God, I need you. I need to sit under your hands. I need to ask you, will you confirm in me truth? Will you restore me because I'm feeling broken down? Will you establish in me faith so that I might live the life you've called me to? Will you give me strength when I'm feeling weak? That is the call, and that is humility. And that's what Peter challenges all of us to process and to work through. Let's pray.